and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey, now. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we are talking to Brett Chalupa. Brett, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, I'd love to. I'm Brett. I have been working with Ruby for about 12 years, primarily paying the bills with Rails, but have done a bunch of Sinatra and like fun non-web Ruby programming before. I organized a Ruby conference in Burlington, Vermont for three years that, you know, in the early 2000, like the mid 2010s, people might mm-hmm. have remembered that Burlington Ruby conference. So yeah, just been a happy member of the Ruby community for a long time. And I recently started making games with it and trying to share what I've been learning and create information and resources relating to that. So I think we'll be talking a bit about making games with Ruby. I'm also like an RSpec geek, and I think maybe people might know some of my RSpec video tutorials, which are just like basically free videos of me writing tests to try to teach people RSpec. And that, that has been maybe the most widely known successful thing I've done that's linked to from the Odin project, project, which is like a free mm-hmm. curriculum for learning Rails. And uh, yeah, so love testing, really like Ruby, and been making a bunch of games lately and having fun with it. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I, I think I said this before the show, but I'm a little bit sad we're doing this during the school day because my 17-year-old wants to be a video game developer when he uh, doesn't grow up. And yeah, it, I mean, it's something that I've always kind of wanted to see if I could do is write a video game as well. So this this is exciting. I also want to preface this by saying that not too terribly long ago, we did talk to Amir Rajan about Dragon Ruby, and we're going to dive into some of that. But he he kind of gave us the fundamentals and, and an idea of where to start. And so I'm thinking that what we may want to do is just talk about Dragon Ruby for like five, 10 minutes. And then what I'd like to do is talk about, okay, now what's the process, right, for actually building a game, right? And let's walk through, okay, you got to get this together. You got to get that together. You got to start doing these kinds of things with Ruby. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. And I... Before we do that, (laughs) how did you get started? Like, what brought you to Dragon Ruby and be like, yeah, I want to dig in on this? Yeah, so I think that's a, a good story that will segue into a background on Dragon Ruby and like a kind of pitch for it and an explanation of what it is. So here's what led to all this. Whenever I'm learning a new technology, I want to focus on learning the technology, not spend a bunch of time trying to think about what to build. So I've kept this private list of project ideas in a note file for years. And it's always like, you know, a clone of this. What if I built an RSS reader? That kind of thing, right? Things that I know would exercise the language in a way that would help me learn it. Not necessarily a project that makes a good business. And so I wrote Mm -hmm. this book called Project Book. And it's a free online book that has over 100 project ideas with like, I made mock-ups and wireframes. So if you're not a designer and you're not interested in design, you could at least go and see the flow of what it would look like to build this app. And it could be a command line app, it could be a desktop GUI, a web app, a library, like a Ruby gem. And then I was like, I should have a section in this called games. So I went and researched and thought about and looked at my own notes on what would be really good games to learn, to start for learning. You know, maybe you want to learn a new programming language or library. Here are some games I would 
try making. A lot of clones of things, snakes, pongs, breakouts, infinite runners, those types of things that all have the fundamental core of what most games have in them. Mm-hmm. So I went, I wrote those, there's like 30 games in Project Book. And that just got me, it reignited this flame of this interest in game development. I went to college for game programming. So I like was doing game programming in college and as a hobby, I like accidentally started doing Rails and then just really enjoyed doing Ruby and Rails programming. That was, I was making money before I was graduated from college. So I left college and just started working full time and haven't really looked back since. But that desire and that interest to make games never went away. So 10, 12 years later, as I'm writing the summary for these 30 game ideas for like getting started with uh, making games, I was like, I'm going to start making games again. And this is like the weeks leading up to my wife having our first baby. So <laughs> we're like, you know, at the hospital and there's not much doing. The ba- Our baby's born. Our baby's doing really great, healthy. Everything is wonderful. You know, my life has changed. Right. And but you have this downtime where the baby's sleeping, you're holding the baby, hanging out. And I was just reading books about making games. So it was just all coming together. And then I was randomly browsing itch.io, which is this website where people, it's an open platform for publishing your games that Mm -hmm. you can just go add a game right now. It can play in the browser. You can download it for desktop operating systems. It's, it's basically like, what if Steam, what if you could just go and put a thing on Steam, right? It's, it's really an amazing place where people make experimental games, small games, big games. It's a really awesome place. I was browsing it and I saw this engine was there dragon ruby i was like what is this (laughs) i've been using ruby for so long i have checked out the other ruby libraries for game making gosu and ruby 2d and i don't know if people ever Mm -hmm. use like hackity hack and shoes and you know the different gui apps for ruby but i've used all those i never heard of dragon ruby so i found it read the docs when my baby was asleep i would go and work on things it just combining like 12 years of Ruby, loving Ruby, and this thing I'm interested in of games really just like ignited this fire that has me wanting to have other people feel that same way and be encouraged. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's like, that's how we get to Dragon Ruby. And then since then, it's just been like this mad dash to learn it, share what I've learned and try to encourage other people to check it out. Right. Cool. I think the things that make Dragon Ruby unique or special or like what really captured me when I found it was, yes, you have Ruby, which I know all the listeners know about, right? So there's no point in really extolling the virtues of Ruby. But what's special about it is, and I don't know, I don't think people generally think about Ruby this way, but, you know, you have a bunch of runtimes for Ruby. You have JRuby, which is Ruby running on the JVM. You have CRuby or MRI, right? The original Mm -hmm. Ruby. You have Truffle Ruby and you have and there's a bunch of different implementations of Ruby. One of those implementations of Ruby that's different than like the main canonical Ruby is MRuby, which is this like side project that Matt's, the creator of Ruby, started funded by, I want to say grants for the Japanese government to build a small pro- portable implementation of Ruby. So instead of it being like, you know, 100 megabytes or however big Ruby is when you compile it, it's like less than four megabytes or something. It's really small and really slim. And because of that, it, it's missing some of the language features. Like like in Ruby, like in C Ruby, you can pass a range into RAND mm-hmm. and you can get a random number back between the range, within that range. That doesn't exist in, in MRuby. So 
Anyway, that's just an example of how it's different. But for the most part, it's really similar, right? You have hashes and arrays and classes and metaprogramming and all that stuff exists. So what Dragon Ruby does is it takes MRuby, it adjusts it a little bit, it connects it with SDL, which is a free open source library for game programming that handles things like displaying a window <laughs> and like making it full screen, querying the operating system, handling controller input, displaying images, all that stuff. It wraps it into a nice API and then gives you tooling to easily deploy your game to iOS, Android, the desktop operating systems, web, and even consoles like Amir, you know, his his big mm-hmm. game, A Dark Room is on Nintendo Switch. And so that's like what it is, right? It combines these different technologies in a really unique, compelling way. And then what it gives you is hot reloading. So as you're writing your game code and you change your Ruby files, the game is still running. And just like when you like update CSS in the browser, it just refreshes your code. The new code is there. So like, let's say you had a player who's running around on the screen and you go and change their speed to be to go from eight pixels every one sixtieth of a second to 10 pixels, you just save that in your editor and then test it. And it's like immediate, which is so different compared to every other game development tooling I've used. So it's got hot mm-hmm. reloading of your code. It's extremely portable and it's got a really slim focused API. So like you can, you can within your head have it memorized, right? The data structures and the primitives and the core methods that you need to know. You can keep that all in your head and you don't need to think about that right. too much, which is amazing, right? There's not a hundred classes. There's not all these different data types and structures to remember. It's a really uh, intentional and well-designed library. So yeah, that's that's basically what it is. And uh, so in a nutshell, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting just from the standpoint of I have I have a friend that does. I think it's Unity that he teaches, Unity 3D. And I mean, he's got like this big mega course on it, right? And, you know, he sells he sells a ton of it. So, you know, it's, I don't know. The, the thing that's interesting about it is that, yeah, you know, when I was talking to Amir, it sounded like this was fairly approachable and I could just pick it up. I know Ruby, I might have to pick up some of the semantics of writing a game but I can do that pretty fast and be up and running and I can use some of the examples and start modifying those to get what I want. 100%. So you discover this Dragon Ruby, right? <laughs> and you, you're you like, all right, this is something I'm super excited about. Like, what's the next step from there? You're, do you just like start running the examples? Like, how do you start like getting kind of involved in it? Yeah, that that process has been really interesting. I just like that project book, Thing that I made, I really believe in learning through doing things. So I like reading books about programming and watching screencasts, especially when I'm stuck or I don't understand something. Like a lot of game programming is math related. And I don't know if you all remember like how to determine like, like here, if you have an X and Y position <laughs> and another X and Y coordinate and you need to determine the angle between those. Like, I completely forget all of that math from high school and before. So I have to go and I watch videos about, like, linear algebra and (laughs) geometry and stuff. So I love resources like that for concepts. But when it comes to just, like, learning a library, I I just love taking an idea and making it, building it, and finishing it. So that is, like, the core of it. So the first thing I did was, okay, let's make a game. So I made a game that... It's like reverse Blade Runner. I don't, I love Blade Runner and sci fi and like the do Android stream of electric sheep. Then there's this test in it 
for people who don't know it, called the Voight Comp Test, where mm-hmm. it you get asked questions and it monitors your eyes and your emotional response to determine whether or not you're an android, right? And mm-hmm. this is like a comedy joke game where the androids have taken over and you are a human, but you have to prove that you're not human. So the questions are all like, you know, really ridiculous and silly, but mostly intended for you to laugh. And it's the questions you get asked are random. And based upon how you answer the the scenario of the story plays out differently. It's like a minimalist, like cyberpunk comedy game. But I made it in a few days, finished it, published it, and people played it and enjoyed it, right? So like, so that was the first step was I made a simple game. Having had many attempts at making projects before, especially when being new to something and learning, is you have to take your ambition and you have to scale it down massively. You have to make something that's so trivial that it seems silly. And like, you have to almost be embarrassed by how simple it is. But like, that is how simple you need to make things to learn. And then you take that and then the second time you make and you finish it, right? You have to finish what you start. That's my like, number one core value is if I start something, I finish it. And that that wasn't that way for 10 years. I have to really scale back and be intentional. But this amazing thing happens where when you finish things, it starts snowballing. So I made that game. It's called Zeno Test. And it's just a silly little free game and it's open source and public domain. So the code's there, right? If someone wants to make a similar game or adapt parts of it, code's totally there, uses the unlicensed. So like you don't have to do anything. You just take the code and use it. So I made that. And then I started working on this game called Destroy All Goblins, which is just this quick arcade action game where you run around, uh, collect gems, and then when you get a gem, you get a different random weapon, and then enemies spawn and flow down on you, so you have to fight them off while collecting gems. And you're just going for the high score. It's like an arcade game, right? That's a little bit more complex than the first game. So I just take these ideas, make them... A little more complex, but I generally know how to do most of it. And then I figured the other stuff out and it keeps compounding. So then once I was finished with that, I said, okay, I'm going to take what I've learned and write a book and, and share this knowledge. Because I think something that Dragon Ruby is lacking is just information and resources. Like it just needs like, <laughs> it just needs like someone to love it, right? It needs some fans and some cheerleaders. So I'm like, I'll be the de facto public cheerleader. I'll make videos. I'll write this book. I'll create documentation, uh, like advanced tutorials and stuff. Just mm-hmm. share it for free. And so I wrote this book. It's called Building Game with, Games with Dragon Ruby. And it just walks you through step by step. Okay, here's how you make a game. And this is the stuff that might not be obvious, but like you have this Ruby knowledge, but then you want to apply it to making games. And making a game is so different than writing like scripts for your computer or writing a web server app where like when you have a web server, right, it's running this long, long running program that reacts to requests and you have the request response lifecycle. And that's like pretty easy to think about. And it's pretty easy to test and simulate and wrap your head around. Games, though, run 60 frames per second. So you have this thing called the game loop that's running. Every time in that game loop, it checks the state of the world, the state of your input, whether or not you press a certain key or your keyboard or your gamepad, you know, has certain input. And then it adjusts things. Maybe it changes the XY coordinates. Maybe it plays a sound effect. There's so many things that can happen and it's happening in a loop so fast. So you, it's a little harder to test. It's a little harder to really understand what's happening there. But it, once you start thinking in the game loop and you start thinking about how things move and how things intersect and then you have collision detection and that sort of thinking is a little different than other programming. So the book walks mm-hmm. through like, okay, let's get a character on the screen. Let's move the character. Okay, let's make the character fire a fireball when you press a button. Okay, now let's display some targets and play some music, some sound effects, pretty normal game stuff. Oh, let's save your game's high score to disk. 
and then load it and compare it, right? Like all these little building blocks that you can take and take those explained concepts. And there's like a little bit of humor in the book. It's got a silly voice. Take it. And then hopefully you can make your own game from that and go from there. But yeah, it's, it's, you're taking games, you have ideas, you pair them down, you figure out how it works, and then you finish it and then make the next one. Okay, I want to just back up for a second because you talked about like collision detection and a lot of these things that involve math. And I'm going to make my 17-year-old listen to this because we fought over math last night. So can you just say about 18 times, you have to know math? <laughs> Not only do you have to know math, I would argue that game programming makes math fun, right? If Yeah, if oh, saying, totally. And that's the best part of it. So you're like, oh, this makes sense, right? Like, oh, okay, I want to make it so that like, here's an example. I, because Dragon Ruby can be put on iPhone and Android, I built this playground that I put on my phone and on my Android test device that just like has a bunch of touch interactions, right? And like, if you've ever played game, like real time strategy games like Starcraft or Warcraft, and you like click somewhere and then the, your, your units move to it. Like, that sounds simplistic, but there's so much math involved with that, right? You have to keep track of where the unit is, where you clicked, and then you have to determine the angle so they're properly, you know, there. then you have to move toward it. And then, like, even that kind of basic math is, uh, yeah, you got to know it. And you got to, I think you'll love it, right? Like, because the math is what powers all of it. Well, and I think because he keeps telling me he's never going to use it. And and this is the thing. And, and I'll, then I'll get off my high horse. But but this is the thing, too, is that, yeah, it makes it fun. It makes it interesting. It's applicable. And it's not a math test. So if you don't understand how to figure out, you know, how far something is or the shortest path or whatever, like there are libraries and algorithms and explanations online that you can use to figure this stuff out. But, yeah, I, I just want to play it back for him like eight times. You have to know math. <laughs> yeah, just loop it. All right. <laughs> Anyway, so so this is the part that I, I kind of want to get into, right? Because Amir, he kind of just talked about, hey, we've got all these different samples and you can go modify the samples. But I want to know like, yeah, you know, and it sounds like this is what your book did. How do I build a freaking game, right? How do I go, okay, like his his favorite game is Undertale, right? I don't know if you've played Undertale. Yeah, I have. So it's a top-down platform game, kind of like Legend of Zelda. I'm old. It's, it's like Legend of Zelda. Okay. And so, yeah. So where do I start with this? Like, how do, how do I start to go, okay, this is the game. I mean, am I jotting pictures down with my pencil or setting up the project or what do I do? Yeah. I love this question and thinking about this because this is, this is, it, games are huge, right? If you want to build an enterprise piece of software, you don't need a ton of creativity. You need some design skills. You need the code skills. But what's so interesting to me about games and what's so different than my day job work is like it combines all of these different creative mediums from the, the sound effect sounding just right when you press a button in the menu to the graphics to the storytelling and the writing and the prose that exists within there to the actual game design, like these systems that happen where like in Zelda, or let's use Mario. In Mario, when you get a mushroom, you get bigger. And then when you're bigger, it changes the flow of the game, right? Like Mm -hmm. that, the ability of how high you can jump and those kinds of systems, right? So you have game design and then you have code within that. So like it's, it's both a blessing and a curse that even the simplest games are extremely complex and that they require a bunch of creative mediums. So what I tend to do or how I tend to think of it is you take a game idea you want. So like, let's say we wanted to make a game like Zelda. I I would love to make a game like A Link to the Past, right? Let's say that's the premise we're going off of. Let's make mm-hmm. something like A Link to the Past, but let's make it so the dungeons are randomly generated so that 
Okay. You go into a dungeon and the enemies you see and the boss at the end is different. You just take that big idea and you just try to pare it down into the smallest bits. So like what I would do if I for our procedural Zelda, I would take I would find some free assets online. There's opengameart.org and itch.io has a bunch of free assets. Mm-hmm. I would take those and not worry about art at the beginning, especially if you're a programmer, right? Like, yeah, you could put some squares in, but right. putting in some art that has animations and you feel it feels good, right? It like gives mm-hmm. your game a, an atmosphere that's more exciting. So I would start with free art, find that, get a bit inspired, drop that in. You can pay for them too, right? Like there are some mm-hmm. really great people who sell assets and you can buy and use those too. I would take that. And then what I would do is I would get that little character, you know, our little Link-esque character displaying. And then I would make it so that you could slash. That's the whole thing, right? It's like, okay, when a sword slashes, what it is is it's a rectangle rotating around a centered point. So you take it, you code it in that game loop where like you press the A button and your little rectangle swirls around Link. And then, okay, that's kind of interesting. What if that little rectangle intersects with another rectangle that's an enemy, right? You just start kind of layering it on top of it Mm -hmm. where you add in different enemies and then you add in health. And then if the enemy hits you, you lose health or maybe certain enemies like spit fireballs and you have to dodge them. And so, okay, great. We've got a character. We've got enemies. We've got the ability to attack. Let's drop it into a dungeon. So, you know, you write an algorithm or you find something that says, okay, make a square or a rectangle, surround it with walls. Then you have to go and you add collision detection for walls, right? It's like each time you want to like mm-hmm. make move the game forward, you're going to encounter something you need to handle. But if you start at the smallest slice, or like the smallest little piece, which is your movable character, and then you keep adding on, it just like happens really organically. What's fascinating to me about that process is that ideas come, right? Ideas bubble. David Lynch, the film director, has this saying that's creativity follows focus and attention. So if you're thinking about something or working on something, new ideas will bubble up. It's just so true. So like, sure, you could go and you could write like a really long design document about our procedural dungeon crawler, or you could just start making it and see what ideas come up. The ideas will come up. (laughs) And then the like process of being a game developer is saying no. Because you're going to have these big ideas, but they're going to, you know, it could take weeks or months to do these huge ideas. And I think when you're starting out at the beginning, it's about saying, no, what's the like, what am I trying to accomplish here? What's the simplest version of getting this complete and then do it in the next game or, you know, do it in a version Mm -hmm. two. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean... So how much of this stuff is comes packaged with it, right? Like you mentioned collision detection a lot. Like, is that part of Dragon Ruby? Like, are there libraries? Like, at what point do you be like, well, this should already exist, right? Like, what is yes, that that is a very big question that because Ruby is a high level language, right? You're thinking the way I think is not far from what I write in Ruby code, which is like the beauty of Ruby. I think a reason why people really like it. It's really expressive. It's a high-level language. The Dragon Ruby API is pretty low-level. It gives you a couple helpers, but there's not like a, other engines will give you more. But the community will, like for example, in Dragon Ruby, you can check to see if two rectangles or squares intersect with each other, which is a form of collision detection. But then you need to determine what happens after that. Do they separate? Mm-hmm. Do they get damaged? Whatever. And you have to then take all these different ingredients that Dragon Ruby gives you and piece them together. And that's why Amir's samples are so great because it shows you like dozens of ways to piece them together. Something that I've found is with the projects that I'm working on is that there are really common things that almost every game, especially 2D game, has. 
and I don't want to keep recoding them. And you can't use Ruby gems as your library. Like there's no dependency management quite at the maturity level of Ruby gems. So you there's there's some options out there that are early days and that you can use. There's one called Smog. But a lot of it is like, you know, you're just dropping in functions and methods and hoping it works. But something I found is that there's these commonalities. So what I did is I made a framework called Scale that gives you like everything you need to make a game that you don't want to think about. So it gives you save data. It gives you menus. It gives you a nice API for a couple of things. It gives you a testing DSL that's a bit more expanded. So it's like, imagine Rails for game development is kind of how I think about it. And it's still early days, right? Like it's functioning. I just use it for a new game that I started and I'll go back and add what I learned to it with the next version. But it's like, there are just these things I don't want to think about. I want to be creative and make the game and not worry too much about pathfinding or collision detection or, you know, how to save JSON and that kind of stuff. So I think that there's space within Dragon Ruby and the Ruby 2D game dev world to have a conventions over configuration, well-documented, full of tutorials on how to do things with it type framework. So that's something I've been working on. And that's that's on GitHub and available and kind of like a neat, a neat thing that I'm hoping can help fill in those gaps. So one thing that I'm looking at, you know, as we kind of pull this together, so, you know, I move, I figure out collision detection, I start adding some of these elements. I, I guess the parts of the, I mean, some of these I'm better than uh, at than others, right? So like, you know, story, for example, you know, I think I could probably do okay, you know, coming up with a story and maybe adding some of the humor to it. But as I start to want to have custom artwork or I want to have music and add music or how do I figure that out? And the other question I have, well, let's let's do that one first and then I'll, I'll ask my other question. Yeah, I think about this stuff and maybe maybe my mind has been slightly poisoned by years of like enterprise business software development, but I think of it agile. And I think there's some <laughs> really important values there that... Like those, the agile manifesto, I, I think about those all the time, which is like release early, release often. Like, let's get this thing out in its simplest version and get some feedback. Okay, let's like, how can I iterate on the game? Where if you think about, if you think about it like a map where you're getting from the start to the finish, that's daunting and exhausting. But if you're like, I've got this playable and functioning and yeah, it's a little simplistic, but okay, what if I take that and then spend another week on improving it? Okay, yeah, that's not so bad. Like, put in some bad art, let's go make it better in the next week. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can do that while people are playing it and getting feedback. And so I just think this iterative approach to making games is, is really important, especially when you're starting out, because the beautiful thing about that is like, you can at any point say this is done, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when it's low stakes and you're having fun and you're learning. If you're like, I've gone three or four cycles, I've iterated on this, I made the music better, I made the graphics better, I fixed some bugs, it's playable. Like, you can just say, I'm done. This is 1.0, and I've iterated, I'm pleased, and now it's done, and you can move on to the next thing. And there's a real trap that I've seen throughout my entire life, which is people have this big dream idea, right? Like, I've been thinking about this idea forever. It is a VR 3D MMORPG like Pokemon where, and it's just, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to be the best game that's ever existed, right? And then people go and spend like five years working on it. And they'll Mm -hmm. have this thing and it kind of works. And But you're like, you just spent five years on like a half-baked thing that barely works. Like, what if you instead said, I'm going to make one game every month for one year. 
I'm going to make 12 small freeware games and just learn mm-hmm. a ton and, and really build that finishing muscle. That's the, that's the kind of mindset that I think will really help at the beginning is keep it small and then you iterate on it and you just keep making it better. And um, there are certain like game types that will accommodate that better. So like if you want to make a huge RPG, like Final Fantasy, right? Like those are some of my favorite games. I love Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest. And they're like, if the game is under 40 hours, it's like a, it's a negative, right? They're like, no, nah, it was kind of short. It was only 38 hours. Like, cause people just want to play <laughs> right. these games for 80 hours or more. I can't work on a game that can give you 80 hours of content, right? That as a single person, it would just take years and be insurmountable. So I really like the idea of taking it and saying, how can I like remove elements to still make something that simulates that and feels really good? So like for the idea of like an RPG, like a turn-based RPG, uh-huh. Okay, like, what if you made a battle system that feels good? Oh, that's not too bad, right? This mm-hmm. idea of there's turns and you have some attacks and spells and defense and there are enemies. Uh-huh. You can code something like that up in like a few hours, right? You could even just do that with Ruby. Like, you could write a Ruby script that's just a command line game that uses, right. you know, gets and puts and, that, you know, it's it's a you, Zork. <laughs> yeah, totally. You can make a text adventure. With right. a battle shoot, system. Well, just, just for the battle system, right? Shoot fire, then you take damage, you know, and it gives you the feedback. Yeah. 100%. So you just take that. Okay, great. We have our battle system. It's simplistic. It's text-based. Maybe there's some free assets that display. Oh, okay, great. There's a game. Oh, I have this story. It's about, you know, this princess who her evil uncle, like, stormed the castle and like killed the princess's father and now she's in hiding and is going and seeking revenge right here's this little story mm-hmm. okay can i take that simplistic combat system in this story that just throwing out there can i combine that into something i can make in a month like what would that look like and i think it would look something like you have a couple towns and it's linear but you're progressing and you still have right. those like great trappings of an rpg you can talk to npcs and you know you can go and get the aesthetics of a feeling of an area you can go and grind through combat and there are boss battles, but like you could, you could make a 30 minute minimal RPG in less than a month. Like I think you'd be surprised when you reduce things, how, how like almost like exciting that is when you take it, reduce it and go, Oh yeah, I could do that pretty quick. And that would actually be pretty fun. So yeah, I love, uh, I love thinking about that. There's just so many, you have these big games and then you go, how can I make it small? <laughs> how can I just right. really like keep the essence of it? And I think it's a good way to good way to start. The MVP. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, yep. it's yep. a yep. it's a si- endless cycle of of minimal viable product. <laughs> I remember the days of Flash, right? Like for those that don't know, Adobe Flash was this uh, you know web product where it ran in your browser and was just kind of like its own VM and. It was a frame-by-frame animated tool that you could make whatever you wanted that was frame-by-frame. And it was super easy to use. (laughs) And I loved it. And and it made, you know, there was websites upon websites just full of games that you could play Flash games and submit them. And it's kind of like coming back to that with Dragon Ruby, I feel like. And it's super cool. And I, I mean, thinking about like the small games, like, it, it would be even cooler if you could have like a transition to pipe games together where like, okay, you're playing one game and hey, I want to pipe the end of this one into the other one. And then like, oh, now I'm playing a new game. Like, am I playing a new, like, you know, like 
I feel like there's just so much opportunity with how easy it is to make these. <laughs> right. Yeah, you uh, can be experimental, right? And that's the creative part that I think meshes really well with Ruby. So where do you go for the playground? Like, where, where do you go for inspiration of Dragon Ruby specific apps or games? Yeah, there's a really great community that exists in Discord, which is like modern day IRC. I think Discord is kind of like, it's expanded. It's not just people who play games and that use it because it's kind of got the mind share, but there's a really great Discord community. And within there are people who are sharing their progress and talking about ideas for games. We even have, I started this thing called the Monthly Game Club, where I have a spreadsheet that people can nominate games and I roll a fake die. (laughs) And whatever number it lands on is the game we play. And we play it for a month and we talk about it. We talk about the design, what works, what doesn't. Oh, how would we even do that in Dragon Ruby? That kind of thing. So we have this, there's a good community there. People, there's like people who are as interested in as open source as I am. So they'll, a bunch of people have their games online, the sources available. So like you can go and look at those to get a sense of how it works, which I really love and value. So yeah, we've got, and also like this really interesting thing happens because the community is pretty small. It's not like you go in and there and it's just like, a a sea of people talking about things. It's really manageable and it feels cozy. But this really interesting thing happens where like there's some healthy competition. Like you see someone do something and you're just like, that's incredible, right? Like like, that is just Mm -hmm. a really, you're pushing it forward. So then it makes me want to go and push it further too. And I think that that just friendly community really makes a big difference where if I was just doing this by myself and then shouting it to the internet and maybe no one cares, that's really hard when you're beginning something. When you're when you're new, like if you just picked up a guitar and you started wailing and making some like noise rock and playing some chords and you put it online, no one's going to care or listen to it. Maybe like family or friends might and they'll tell you they like it <laughs> because they're nice and they're friends. <laughs> but like it's really cool to have that's why people form bands, right? Because you're with other people, you are pushing each other to be better, you're creating things together. Yeah, that's Oh, here's another Interesting thing. So I don't know. There's this art exercise called Exquisite Corpse, where maybe you take a piece of paper and you divide it into four quadrants. I start drawing in the upper left. I hand it to you, Chuck, and you start drawing. You connect the lines I started. Mm -hmm. And maybe I drew a snake and then you turned it into like, you know, a bowl of ramen. And then I give it to you, Valentino, and then you keep it going, right? And it's just, you don't know what you're going to get till you get it. And then you just do the best you can and you have fun with it. So I thought, why don't we take that as the Dragon Ruby community, but do it with a game? So I'm going to work on this game for a week, and then I'm going to hand it to the next person. And then they're going to hand it to the next person. And it encourages like not being precious with your code. It encourages you to have some level of standards because you know someone else is going to look at that code. <laughs> so you, you know, you'll get blame it and they'll be like, why did this person do this? It's really fun and allows for some creative game design. And right now we're in week three of it. So I and we have 12 people signed up. So it'll take three months to run its full cycle. And we're calling it exquisite mm-hmm. core. Like, I don't know if you ever played Contra Hardcore, but it's like a pun on, you know, the spelling and stuff. <laughs> but so that's this way where like, we're like directly and, and you don't know what it is till you, it's your week. So we have a private thread for the alumnists who can go and we're talking about it as it's going. And like, it's just, it's really fun. And I, I like to tease what the game isn't. Like, I'll keep saying it's, you know, like a dating simulator or whatever <laughs> to try to just, so people have no clue what it is, but yeah, it's, um, it's been really, uh, 
just an awesome community too. And just people are making cool stuff. That sounds so fun. Yep. So uh, one thing that I kind of wanted to dive into here is, and this was kind of the other question that I had, and I'm, I'm assuming you're going to say something like playtest, but like, how do you make sure that you have the right balance, right? So it's not too easy. It's not too hard. Maybe understand enough about your audience to know, yeah, you said some people want the 80 hour game and right. That's not what I'm going to build on my own. So how, how do we kind of pull that together? Like, how, how do I make sure that the concepts and the difficulty line up with what people expect? Yeah, that's that's a hard part because what happens is that as you're making the game, you're playing it constantly, right? You're just, mm-hmm. you're getting really good at it. And then you hand it right. to someone who's never played it and it seems just like disturbingly hard. <laughs> right. And I think that that's just, uh, but the thing is that there are certain games and certain genres of games that, you know, target a, a particular player who maybe is really well versed in that genre and they're expecting that and they'll exceed that skill level or exceed your skill level, even as a developer or, um, you know, so it's about kind of knowing who you're making the game for. And I think that's another mm-hmm. part of the design aspect, which is like, oh yeah, if I'm making a snake game, a casual game you can play on your phone on the web, like it should be pretty approachable, right? It has a simple interface right. and inputs and, you know, that should be pretty approachable and maybe it scales up in difficulty, but Ideally, you should be able to hand that game to anyone. They should be able to play it. Like for our dungeon crawler, our procedural dungeon crawler, like, well, maybe we uh, make that harder because we know that people who play those types of games are want it to be difficult. And that's part of the fun of the game. And, and I think you see that with like the rise of challenging games these days, like Dark Souls and Elden Ring and games like Spelunky and where it's challenging. But the reward is that you learn the game and the systems. And that's the the fun of it. So it just, yeah, it's so hard to know though. It's, I've fallen this trap where it's like you, you work on it for a few weeks (laughs) and it's unplayable by someone else because it's, you know, all the secrets and the tricks and how to play it. Right. Right. So do you have, do you make, you know, secret, you know, cheat codes just for you? (laughs) Yes. And I would love to talk about this because I, I think this just like the game loop and some other things that are unique to making games is, you have to code shortcuts for yourself. It makes developing so much faster. So like, I'll give you some examples. I'm making a snake game. It's called Slither. The unique part about it is that I hand drew all the graphics and I scan them in. <laughs> and then I have to adjust them. Oh, so nice. Lined up. Yeah, but it's it's like cute and silly and um, it'll be free and it's public domain. That playing snake and getting to like 30 pieces long It's really annoying. So what I do is you just code in some stuff that says, if you're not in the production build, which is really easy to do in Dragon Ruby, if you press the one key, grow by one length. So I just jam the one key. Now I'm 30 pieces long and can test that. So like debug mode shortcuts and features are so fun, so useful. Here's some other examples. In Destroy All Goblins, there's a button you can press to toggle invincibility so that you're not just like, so you can actually progress and God test things mode. out. Yeah, totally. Yep. God <laughs> mode. I think anything like the moment you're working on a game and you find it tedious to get to a certain point, like a level or an area mm-hmm. or a level of power or something, just add a way to shortcut that so that you can actually test the things that you're changing much more quickly. And that requires a way of coding and thinking about your games. That's really um, meaningful because if you need to make it easy for your snake to grow by one length, well, hmm, maybe I should have a, a method called, you know, 
gross snake. And then you pass in whatever, the data structure, right? So then you can call that from in the game, but then you can also call that from your code that your debug mode shortcut. So I think it right. leads to this architecture that's really uh, valuable. And I think if, if, it's, if it's not too like in the weeds, I'd love to talk about some of the coding architecture stuff and like what's interesting about it in Dragon Ruby because it's quite different than I think most Rubyists are familiar with. In a, in a way that's yeah, very just, fun and liberating. I just, before you go there, it's funny that you brought up the cheat codes for the book club. So last night, you know, we did the book club for uh, top end devs and uh, we've been reading clean architecture. And that's one of the things that uh, Uncle Bob actually put in the book was that you need to have in order to test your applications, ways of getting around the brittle parts of your application, which is usually the UI. Right. And so in that case, yeah, you he talks about having a test API that you hit to put it into the state you want so that you right. And and that's what you're talking about here. I just thought it was interesting that this is another application that I hadn't really thought too deeply about that. Oh, yeah. So anyway. And part of that, too, is like when you have that more modular design of your code, right, you can have that test API framework, you can have cheat codes. And also, generally, that code's easier to write automated tests for, which is just right. so valuable. And in Dragon Ruby, there's a test runner, and there's that test DSL that I wrote called Dragon Test. And you take that and you piece it together, and you're like, oh, yeah, like this complex thing, it's like well unit tested. And that, that feels like really powerful because it's using the cheat code, it's using the game, and it's really easy to test. It's a, yeah, it just feels good. It's like, it's good architecture. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so let's dive into the architecture because I would imagine that it looks a little different from say my Rails apps or Sinatra apps that I'm building. Yeah, I, there, this is like maybe one of the big like community contention points, the big splits, right? So Amir has shared that the design of the API is inspired by functional programming and it really shows, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, centered around the data you have, like these simple data structures, which are 99% of the time hashes, and then you change them based upon your game logic, and then you have some methods that you call. There's no classes that you need to know. There's no... I've never once written .new <laughs> in any of the Ruby games I've written, and I've made about five or six in the last few months. So by default, all the samples... Or like nine, like a majority of the samples and like the book that I wrote doesn't use OO. And I think when you come from a Ruby world and especially Rails, where you have this inheritance where like your models that you're inheriting from Active Record Base are what's flowing through your application, you're changing them, you're mm -hmm. updating them, and you're, you're thinking about things in terms of objects. But Dragon Ruby wants you to think about things in terms of data that you pass into methods that adjust them or calculate based on it. And I remember the first day I started writing Dragon Ruby, I was like, okay, great. I'm going to go and oh, oh, the heck out of this, right? I'm going to wrap everything and do all this stuff. <laughs> but then what ends up happening is that like, you end up making these abstractions about your game before you even understand them fully. And then it becomes much more difficult to change. So if you have a hash with a bunch of attributes about 
what's happening in your game, that's a lot easier to change than going and renaming a bunch of classes or trying to figure out like, oh, what's the generic name for this class? Should it be entity or actor or sprite? And oh, then you figure out the inheritance tree. Oh, the apple is a sprite, but the apple doesn't have AI. So it's not, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like you can, people have and, and can apply OO to game development in a way that I'm sure works well. But Amir and Dragon Ruby and the docs and the book really encourage you to think about things functionally. And it's been eye-opening to, because Ruby gives you all these tools, right? Like a ton of OO tools, everything's an object. Like, so, oh, I guess I should make objects too. But then when you go and you think like, I'm just going to make a bunch of methods that I pass data into. And this beautiful thing happens where it's easier to test them. It's easier to replicate the state of things because you just have a hash in memory that you're modifying and adjusting instead of all these instances of objects. And I think it's made the code a lot cleaner. Like it's like a lot easier to reason about. So the architecture approach I've taken that scale, the framework takes and that I've really been enjoying is putting class methods and modules. So if you have a player, which is really common, you would call capital P player, the constant dot tick and then you pass data into it. And tick is just what runs that 60 times a second in the game loop. And then from there, calls out other methods. And uh, yeah, it's been really weird. Like, it feels bad. It feels like I'm uh, <laughs> doing bad things because it's not the usual, like, Ruby way of doing things. But I I gotta say, I just love it. And, I, and it mirrors a lot of, like, modern web programming where, like, if anyone's used React or similar components where you, like, have a bunch of data in the client-side data store, and then you're just, you know, changing the state. It's reacting based upon data changing. It, it feels super good to me, at least. <laughs> so, yeah, mm-hmm. that's been a really big difference. And then I go back into my day job work where we have these complex inheritance trees, and it's really difficult to reason about because you don't know, like, what the data you have at any given point is and then like what it needs to be in the database. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a really good, uh, I, I like that about making games with Dragon Ruby and having the stakes be low is that I can experiment and try things without having a bunch of dogma around like, Oh, I'm doing an entity component system, which is like a really like trendy game programming. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's like, Oh, I gotta have an ECS, which maybe it'd be helpful. But the idea of instead of saying like, what if I just like try it and see what feels good? And I think when you write code for long enough, it, those, like, you know what feels right and what feels good. And when you go and you write the code and then you refactor it and you're like, ooh, that, that's better. Like, that's a nicer API or it's easier to test or reuse. Like, that muscle memory starts to happen. And it's, it's really cool to apply it to like a different style of programming or a different, uh, yeah, paradigm. That's an interesting, uh, concept to think of it in like that functional way which makes me wonder like maybe there's something missing like can you control the frames per second or is that a fixed thing fixed yeah it's fixed and so i mean there's so much we were talking to the mirror before like there's so much you can do to optimize based on that right because you know it's fixed and you know it's going to continue doing that so you can optimize how the code is you know running in certain ways so it'd be interesting to kind of see somebody apply this to like you know, something that's not game, right? Like maybe you have uh, some post-processing, you know, background job that periodically runs at a specific time and you want it to, you know, process in batches of things. Like, I feel like this almost, this feels very familiar, uh, right? And so 
I, I would be interested to see somebody take a spin off this, right? And like apply Dragon Ruby to like, you know, just co- computation. I feel like there that would be a huge, uh, it would make things a lot more easier to reason about, right? Because I feel like I'm always like, you know, one of the hardest problems of like background jobs is like any dependency. Like as soon as they mm-hmm. become dependent and they have to like process something next, like, but if it's all like, you know, part of this ecosystem that, you know, has ticks and like can, you know, it's just always running. Like, I feel like there's an opportunity there. Not that I want people to not make games. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And I think too, like just functional Ruby is really an interesting idea to interrogate and think about. And I think Sinatra is a really good example of this thing where you can just have your Sinatra app and it's just a bunch of, you know, it's just basically methods, right? That are responding to HTTP verbs. And I think the question becomes when you, it gets a little more complex, which do you reach for, right? (laughs) Do you reach for classes and objects or do you reach towards just passing that data through different places? And yeah, I'm really, I'm really interested in understanding more about how farther I can take this or how I can take and apply to things. Like, I think there's a, I think there's a space for like a, a book or a resource or a guide that's like, here's how to do functional Ruby and here's why you should try it. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it'd be mm-hmm. something to think about. I, I always love yeah. uh, Jim Warrick's Lambda Calc Talk. I mean, that that was just yep. eye-opening to me. Uh, I wanted to just quickly, like, transition, because I'm super curious, like, have you deployed this anywhere? Like, is this running on, you know, game operating systems? Like, what is that process like? X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd love to. So Destroy All Goblins is just like free and available for Windows, Mac, Linux. And you can just download it from the itch.io page, which is cool. So you can go to brettchalupa.itch.io and you'll find Destroy All Goblins and some other things I'm working on. You'll find Slither, that cute snake game. And I'll talk about that process of how you deploy it because it's it's incredible. So a, mm-hmm. a big part of Dragon Ruby is it has zero dependencies. So you don't have to install anything. You get a zip for your operating system. You unzip it. You run the executable, and that's it. You don't have to install anything with Homebrew, whatever. It's it's. I've never used any piece of software for making for writing code that's like that, which is really special. And then how you deploy it is special. So because the game's just running Ruby code, Ruby code can run anywhere. So when you get the engine, it has basically wrappers or stubs for every platform from iOS to Mac to Android to Linux to Windows. And it just takes your Ruby code and inserts it into the wrapper with a command. So your game builds as quickly as your Ruby code copies into those wrappers, basically. So you can go take your game, make changes, save it, commit it, bump the version, run one command and push it in less than 60 seconds, have a new version updated on itch, and you can go and automate it to publish to other places too. But it's like, it's so disturbingly fast that it's almost dangerous because you're like, oh, I can just, it's, it's, it's as easy as pushing to Heroku, right? Like it truly is. Oh, and wow. that that's what's incredible. I've never used any game engine that you can get cross-platform builds on one platform. So like another game engine I've used, who I won't name, I have to go and I have to boot up a VM for each operating system and compile it on there, which like, that's like slow and not fun, right? That's like not how I want to spend my time. So you get that. Awesome. And then on the mobile side, Dragon Ruby has a HTTP server built in that. So on my iPhone, I can work on Slither, the snake game. It's making 
requests to my Mac OS computer over the local network. And when a Ruby file changes, it hot loads it on my phone running. Like, so I can on my Mac OS computer change Ruby code. It automatically refreshes on my phone and I can test it out. It's like the fastest, slickest cycle for making games I've ever seen. And it's, it's like, I just can't overstate how fun and exciting that is. And to get it on Android, like to get my game, the snake game working on Android, it took me five minutes and everything just worked. Like, that's like not how things go in the world of desktop and mobile development. So, yeah. That's awesome. You've really got me inspired here. (laughs) Yeah. One thing that I'm wondering is just selling it. Like you've mentioned putting it out for free, but yeah, I mean, can, can you just like, I guess you can just put it on Steam, right? And they just load it up like anything else. Yeah, totally. And and so Steam these days, it used to be different, but these days and like uh, the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store, you have to register as a developer and for right. Apple, you pay 99 bucks. And for Steam, you pay 100 bucks or so. You can put your game on there and you can charge, you can charge for it. You can on itch too. And I think that's like, that's my goal, right? Like I'm, I'm early stages. I'm, I'm, yeah, I've got some game programming background a little bit, but I'm like coming coming fresh out of Rails, thinking about, you know, that whole world in the web. But I'm excited and I'm inspired and I've got a decade of Ruby experience. So it's like, and you find this tool that's got this incredible developer experience and you want to make games, it's like hit the ground running. And I think it's the, I'm at like stage one. And then I think the next stage is like, okay, well, let's sell some games, right? And let's, Let's charge for them. And that's totally possible because how I'm thinking about this and this game stuff is like thinking about like a business, right? Like, yeah, you can do it for fun and as a hobby. A lot of people do. But my perspective on it is like, I want, I want this to be a business and I want to be able to be creative and write code and make cool, weird games. And it'd be nice if I could do that for my day job, right? So step one is like, I have to get the skills and I have to Mm -hmm. choose the technology I'm going to use that like empowers me to be the most creative and work quickly and accomplish those goals. So I feel like Dragon Ruby's done that. So to me, it's like, okay, if this is like an investment and a a decision, like a business decision to use this engine, I want to feel really good about it. And I do. And then the second thing is like, I want the community to just feel amazing because I think if I invest time into the community and the resources, that will make the engine better and thus it will, you know, benefit me. So it's like, it's like a win-win-win. And I've, I've been working on uh, like follow-ups to the book, which uh, I, I'm working on a zine. So it's like a print zine. I made stickers <laughs> and it has, <laughs> it's like, imagine you're excited about making games. You go, you order this zine for four bucks or whatever, you know, at cost, I'll mail it to you. And it's like got tutorials, it's got interviews, it's got a lot of things we've talked about here. Like, that kind of thing, right? So making a zine, I'll write a sequel to the book that covers more advanced topics. Like I just, I want, I want someone who is as excited as I am to see it and have a really smooth transition into making games and being creative and expressing themselves and, and having fun. Cause like, it's just straight up fun, which is the best part. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty, I really want to go try it out. Just dive in a little bit. Yeah. I'm serving through your itch now and there's a lot of fun ones in there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's about having fun and like don't put the pressure on yourself, right? Like that's the that's like the most important thing is like have fun, take the pressure off, learn some things and like and finish it and put it out there and share it because that's that's like a the unsung skill is is finishing. That just reminds me of who is it? Adam Gordon Levitt that we've had on before. 
and he interviews mm-hmm. the guy from Apple that made the first like drawing app. <laughs> and uh, his first thing was like he just released the source code in some local computer like publication. And somebody was like, hey, this is cool. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, and there's this long story. And he like, you know, eventually he sells it to Apple for like millions of dollars. But like, <laughs> you know, it started out with just something simple. He was having some fun and, you know, shared it with everybody, you know. I love yeah. that. That that idea, too, of like, here's just like some source code, like on a computer, like on a local computer. That's like the kind of vibe that I want the zine to have. So there's a snake. There's just the code for snake. It doesn't explain any of it. And you, you know, the goal is like you get the zine, it arrives in the mail and you type this snake in and you learn how to, you know, make snake. And there's some other like cool surprises that really take like sharing code in a way that's different than GitHub or a GitHub gist. Or I think there's just some really neat, cool stuff you can do there. Yep, absolutely. Well, I'll definitely be diving in. Uh, where do I get the book? The book is at book.dragonriders.community, which I can't believe community is a top-level domain, but it is. And yeah, you'll find it all there. There's links to PDF version if you want to read it offline. You can also play the game you'll be making in the web just to get a sense of what that is. Very cool. All right. Well, anything else before we do picks? No, uh, I just say... That is a no. Yeah. I said picks, but we need to do promos first. So this is a new segment, if you haven't listened to the show for a while, where we just talk about what we're working on that people ought to know about. So Valentino, what are you working on that people should know about? So I work for a company, Doximity, it's basically a social network for doctors. But I've been working on this really fun project. We have these hack days at the end of the quarter where we get to work on kind of whatever we want. And somebody kind of mused with all these chat GPT stories coming out. Oh, we should... Somebody had... A uh, posted a thing where, you know, p- patients get rejected for medicine or certain coverage items. And oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could have ChatGPT, you know, generate some in, you know, denial rebuttal letter to these insurance companies. And so it snowballed and kind of we built this thing where, you know, you said you can say, hey, generate a insurance denial letter for medication or a number of different things. And it'll, you know, use the generate a special prompt and give you a completion with a letter. And then since we, you know, allow faxing for doctors, uh, the doctors can then take that and then fax it to the insurers who we already have fax numbers for. And, you know, basically automate a lot of this flow so that they can, you know, provide actual care for their patients that are getting denied care, right? (laughs) And so it's just been so much fun, like, working with this, like, you know, AI stuff. It's just been a lot of fun. It'll be at doximity.com slash doc dash GPT. Really looking forward to releasing that today. Nice. So what I'm working on, I'm getting ready to launch a new podcast and we're going to put it out next week. I'm going to be putting up a few episodes every week. Some of them will be free. Some of them will be premium and it's called Catapult Your Coding Career. And so we're going to be talking about it's not just career advice. I've been talking to a lot of different people doing a bunch of coaching lately. And the the kinds of things that people are getting hung up on aren't always the, well, gee, what do I put in my resume? We're going to cover that stuff. But it's also, hey, how do I stay current on the latest and greatest thing in front-end JavaScript or whatever? How do I figure out why I'm not getting any job interviews? I feel stuck at work, 
right? I'm not learning anything new. I'm just doing the same old thing every day. And I don't feel like I'm advancing. I'm a junior developer. I'm not getting a whole lot of support at work. And I don't know what to do to move ahead, right? And so I'm going to be talking about these things and answering the questions. Some of these questions are probably going to come in a couple of parts, right? Hey, here's how you do the first part. Here's how you do the second part. Or maybe here's one approach. Here's another approach. Or I, I recommend three things. So here are three episodes. But yeah, I mean, that's what I'm going to be diving into. So ultimately, the point is, is whatever you need to know or learn as technical or soft skills or project management skills or, you know, whatever uh, management skills for or leadership skills for managers, we're going to talk through all of those kinds of things and just open the gate to, yeah, how do I how do I move my career up to the point where it is giving me what I want, both from a fulfillment and maybe a pay range down to it gives me the hours that I need in order to support my lifestyle, right? So if if you have kids or you have a parent you have to take care of or whatever, right? It's, hey, you know, how do you build a career that will support the kind of life you want to have? And at the same time, it's fulfilling on its own enough so that it's not a job. It's something you enjoy doing since you spend so much time there. So that's what we're putting together. If you go look for it in the podcast apps, when it shows up, the artwork has a rocket on it. It's, it's a red rocket, I think. So anyway, yeah, it says catapult in the name and I put a rocket on because I think rockets are cool. But anyway, so that's what I'm working on. That's kind of the big push coming up. And then the book club, we're finishing up Clean Architecture and beginning in February, we're going to do a Docker Kubernetes deployment focused book. So th- those are the things that I'm working on. Uh, how about you, Brett? What are you working on that people should know about? Yeah, I am working on Slither, the public domain cute snake game that is available on web now and will be on iOS and Android soon. It'll be my first game on those platforms. And then I think my next project is going to be called Daily Dungeon. It is going to be a dungeon crawler with procedurally generated dungeons, but you can only play it once a day. And the random seed will be the current date. So everyone will have the same seed and the same experience. We can only play it once per day. And uh, it'll be like a non-addictive, fun, cute art, roguelike game. So I think that's the next big, you know, the next next step for a more complex game that I want to make is Daily Dungeon. And uh, yeah, I think the, the Dragon Ruby zine will be out in a couple weeks. And eventually... Uh, yeah, people will be able to read that and, and buy a physical copy if they want to, which is fun. Cool. All right, well, let's do some picks. Valentino, why don't you uh, throw some picks at us? Yeah, my first pick is uh, this app I came across called Amazing AI for the Mac. And it basically uses some uh, AI image generation with uh, the new M1's stable image diffusion to quickly generate photos from a prompt really fun to play with and you don't need to like sign up for an account or anything and it's free super fun and let's see that's pretty much it yeah that was the latest thing i've been working been been having fun with awesome i'm gonna throw out a few picks i always do a board game pick so i'll start out with that one Um, i'm gonna pick a card game it's called karma and it's pretty simple board game geek waits it at one right so it's it's simple enough to where younger kids can play but it's a fun game, and it's a fun game to play with adults. It takes about 20 minutes to play a game. And what it is, is you deal nine cards to everybody. 
You don't look at the cards. You put three of them face down without looking at them. Then you look at the cards. You put the three highest cards on top of those. And then you start out, the first person puts down usually their lowest card on the discard pile because it's empty. You can put whatever you want. And then everybody else after that has to either match or beat the number. If you can't match or beat the number, you pick up the discard pile, right? Pretty simple. Uh, has karma cards, and the karma cards are essentially wilds, so you can play them at any time, and they have different effects, right? So one of them is uh, choose somebody to pick up the discard pile, right? So even if they can play on it, they they get the the pile, right? And then you 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 know you pull that out of the game so that. It doesn't get played again. Uh, the rest of them stay in the game. So there's one that's play a card that's five and under. And so the person after you has to play a card that's five or lower, or they have to pick up the pile. And so if you know they're into their higher cards, right, you can mess them up or uh, whatever. But anyway, after the draw pile runs out, because you draw back up to three after every turn, when the draw pile runs out, when you run out of cards in your hand, then what you do is you start playing the cards that are face up in front of you. And once all those cards are gone, then you can play the cards that are face down. But you play them on your turn by flipping it over, seeing if you can beat the discard pile. And if you can't, then you have to show everybody the card you picked up and then pick up the discard pile. And then you have to run out of cards again before you can play another card or play another face down card or face up card if you're, you know, playing them so those are called table cards one of your karma cards lets you play a table card and you can play anyone you want it because you've played the the karma card as a wild and so anything beats a wild so you can right so anyway i mean that's it that's the whole game there you go you know how to play karma and i think we got it for christmas last year and it's it's been a lot of fun so i'm gonna pick that as far as other picks go, I've been watching 1923, which is one of the spinoff series from Yellowstone. I really like Yellowstone, but the spinoff series have been better than Yellowstone, I just have to say. So 1883 was awesome. I, I really, really loved that. And 1923 is also really, really, it's, it's a terrific show. And one of the things I like is that they don't, they don't gloss over some of the ugly stuff that happened in the past. I mean, I don't feel like at this point it makes sense to make modern society make amends for the things that were done in the past because the people who did them and the people they did them to, I mean, they're not here anymore, right? But we can acknowledge, hey, we don't ever want to be those people again, right? And so, and, and it's also interesting just to look at kind of the mindset. It's like, okay, how, how do you get to a mindset where that actually makes any sense? The other thing that was funny was that uh, the last episode I watched, there's a guy in town that's saying we're, we're installing electricity into buildings, right? Something we all take for granted today. And he's selling, he's like, we'll, we'll, we'll sell you the electric service and then we'll rent you washing machines and refrigerators and stuff like that. And it's funny because all the men are going, what do we need that for? And then, you know, as they're walking away, two of the women look at each other and go, that washing machine makes a whole lot of sense to me, right? Because they had to, wash the clothes by hand. And that's just kind of the way they divided the labor, right? The men drove the cattle and slept on the ground and, you know, did all that. And the women, you know, washed the clothes and kept the house and whatever. And so anyway, it's it was interesting just to kind of see that perspective come through too. So uh, anyway, I enjoyed that. And then I also have started uh, listening to on Audible, the, the Mistborn books again. And so... Because there was a new, there's a new book called The Lost Metal that came out. 
And it's, it's from the second phase of that with Wax and Wayne. It doesn't have, it's not Ben and Ellen and Kelsey or that, that crew. But I was like, well, heck, I'm going to listen to all of them because they all happen in the same world structure, right? And I know eventually Brandon Sanderson's planning on doing like crossovers where different characters with different investitures, right, from the different shards. I could I could go on and on about the Cosmere, but there, there's going to be crossovers and you're going to see some of your favorite characters crossover. And I'm kind of wondering in The Lost Metal, and this may be a spoiler. I haven't read it yet, so it's it's a it's a theory right now. But if you read, he has a series of short stories called Arcanum Unbound. And it basically, one of the stories is when Kelsier gets killed in Mistborn. I'm sorry, these books came out so long ago that I don't care about spoilers anymore. When he gets killed, his his spirit kind of moves on and they're, you know, they move through different realms to get there. But when he did it, he kind of deviated and he absorbed the preservation shard. And so by doing that, he basically unchained himself from the natural progression after you pass on. And Brandon Sanderson has basically said that Kelsier is going to come back somehow. And so I'm wondering if in the Lost Metal, there's something that allows him to come back. I also have a theory that the the Chandra that, you know, absorbs his bones and, you know, kind of reconstructs Kelsier, you know, to appear to people to uh, bring on the revolution in the in the Mistborn books. I'm totally going. I this I, I love this stuff, but I, I think I think that's going to be a thing, right? Where the Chandra basically reconstructs his body, and then there's some way that he can re-inhabit it. But anyway, so th- that's me spitballing on this stuff. But I I love I really love these books. There are a whole bunch of them, and Brandon Sanderson's actually been recruiting people to co-author some of the books to move some of the stories along. And so you're, you'll see this in some of his series where it's it's written by Brandon Sanderson and somebody else. And, you know, he just consults on the book and makes sure that the style matches and stuff like that. So anyway, I'm excited for The Lost Metal. I've been reading Mistborn. They are terrific books. If you haven't read them, I'm sorry I spoiled some of it for you, but it's so good. And the first book's a heist book, which is, anyway. So those are my picks. I went on and on and on, but those are my picks. Brett, what are your picks? My picks are game-related. I figured two of them are and one isn't. We'll start with one that isn't. I've been reading Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. And oh, nice. Agatha Christie, she's just amazing. Like, they flow so well. It's I'm, I'm enraptured. I don't know what's going to happen because I haven't read it before. I haven't seen the movies or anything. So, yeah, I'm loving that. I didn't know that M.Dot was... Monsieur, I thought every single character's name started with M. <laughs> it's like, why is this author naming everyone M? Like, this is uh, this is out of control. <laughs> and then I did some research and realized that it's not that. So, just a tip: if you do read it, not every single character's name starts with M. Um, I've made worse assumptions reading books, so you're good. <laughs> I want to recommend a book called "How to Make a Video Game." All by Yourself. It's a very clear book based on the title about what it is. It's by this author, Matt Hackett. You can go and order a print copy or read it from Kindle. I read this book in the hospital after my baby was born when I couldn't sleep and I just devoured it. It's like the kindling that lit this flame of what I'm currently interested in working on. So that's how to make a video game all by yourself. It's really wonderful and gets you in the mindset of how to go about this without talking about code. So it's, it's for, it's, you know, it's a 
it's like a vibe and a mindset and a, and a feeling that it's, it's trying to, you know, get you focused. So I love that book. Mm-hmm. And then my third pick is the monthly game club game from the Dragon Ruby community that we're playing. It's called Momodora Reverie Under the Moonlight, which is a tongue full of a name. But the Momodora series is like, imagine like uh, old Metroid and Castlevania games and uh, kind of like Mega Man-ish. It's an action 2D platformer. Pixel art, it's really beautiful. Really been enjoying it. It's a little tough, but uh, has amazing art too. And it's from around 2015. So it's a modern retro inspired game. And my favorite thing about it is that as I'm playing it, I go, oh, I know how to do that. I, I'm going to take that. And I'm going to put that in my game. Or, oh, I, that's not, it's not too far advanced from what I can do, right? Like if you go and play the new God of War game or whatever, you know, huge AAA 3D game that exists. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. Maybe I could kind of figure it out and hand wave explain it. But when I play 2D games and older games, modern 2D games, I go, oh, I see how the systems are working. And I think I know how I could code that. And that's just like a really amazing feeling to have that be within reach and have fun playing it. And, and this is a little thing, but it's like one of the special parts about game development and game feel is that you're running around, you're jumping, you're exploring, and then you go into this new section of the map and there's this huge enemy that's stomping on the ground and it shakes the controller just a little bit. And it just adds to that intimidation factor that I love in games where, like, who would think that just this little motor inside of a thing vibrating, you know, could fill you with dread. But when you have, when nothing else vibrates and then you have this enemy that, you know, shakes the controller, you're just... It's it's like that's the that's the good stuff in games. I really really love those moments and feelings. So that's Momodoro Reverie Under the Moonlight. Those are my picks. Awesome. All right. So I I'd didn't like ask to, this. I'd before. like to add one more pick. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> Your story by reminding me of this uh, video short on why props matter, and they go through a list of very popular movies and different props in the movies and how pivotal they were to keeping like uh, the story, like just very uh, riveting. And it's, it's a really great short. I, I recommend it. Awesome. So if people want to connect with you somehow, Brett, where, where do they find you? Yeah, you can go to my website. It's www.brettchalupa.com. And there you'll find my newsletter where I send out emails about what I'm working on, what I'm learning, things I've finished. I've got a blog there that I'm working on updating more. And uh, that also links out to Mastodon, which Mastodon's like, I'll tell you the server I'm on, if I can remember it. It's mastodon.gamedev.place. You can find me there. I'm Brett Makes Games on there. And I just post updates about what I'm working on. And uh, yeah, github.com slash Brett Chalupa. If you're interested in the coding aspects, I really try to open source everything that I work on that isn't like, you know, like I can imagine I'll work on a bigger game or something that is a commercial project that I don't open source. But for now, for freeware and learning, everything is just there and love, love sharing code there and uh, contributing stuff there. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks for coming, Brett. This was this was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a blast. Yeah. Till next time, folks. Max out. <laughs>